and welcome to the Rosary Shrine. And we're very pleased here at the Rosary Shrine to welcome Father Gregory Pine as we relaunch the Thomistic Institute here in London. A few years ago, we did launch the Thomistic Institute again from the Rosary Shrine. Some of you might have heard of the TI. If you're not, I'm sure Father Gregory Pine would be very happy to tell you more about the TI. Um, and we are hoping to uh, start the London chapter again. So uh, there is a sign-up list for those of you who are interested after this talk, or you can also get in touch with Jamie. Jamie, if you could please just make yourself known. Yes, and Jamie, we're very happy to take your contacts so that you can stay uh, subscribed and involved with what the TI is organizing. Okay, so we're very pleased to have uh, Father Gregory Pine here, and he will be talking about um, how to think like St. Thomas Aquinas, and we're broadcasting live on Radio Maria. So um, without much further ado, welcome, Father. Okay, we can, we can begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly, for the praise and glory of thy name, who live and reign forever and ever, amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, it's a delight to be here. Uh, thanks so much for coming. Um, my, my name is Father Gregory, and I live at present in Switzerland, where I'm studying at the University of Freiburg. But I originally come from Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is like 30 minutes from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, so the United States. And I entered the Order of Preachers in 2010, and I was ordained in 2016. And since then, I have been assigned as a parish priest in a small church in Kentucky, where I also taught at a, a university called Bellarmine University. And then I worked for the Thomistic Institute, which Father Lawrence mentioned, um, as assistant director for campus outreach. And that involved some media things and then some other things, which is a very obscure way of describing one's job. Um, <laughs> I like to say that the longer your job title is, uh, the less important. So mine was very long. Um, and then I've been in Switzerland since then. So the theme for today is how to think like St. Thomas. And a good way in which to orient our inquiry is to think about it in terms of the habits of mind and heart, which makes for a good thinker. So I think that um, when we envision problems uh, in the 21st century, oftentimes we think about producing results or consequences or outcomes. So that way we can assess them and then get more government grants and then assess them further. Um, but St. Thomas Aquinas is not so much concerned with consequences or results qua, qua results. He's more so concerned about the transformation of the individual whereby we become more made to the image and likeness of God. So I thought that we could just start with this kind of image and then move from there to those habits of mind and heart which actually make us to be good thinkers, conformed to our Lord Jesus Christ, and drawn into communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be made to the image and likeness of God, and then how do those habits of mind and heart fit in within that framework? So 
I like to say often that to be made to the image and likeness of God is in large part to have a mind with which to know and a heart with which to love. So God creates many different things which testify to his goodness and which give us small insights as to his interior life. So you have rocks, you have plants, you have animals, but among all of material creation, we stand out on account of the fact that we have these intellectual volitional capacities, that we have this immaterial element, that we transcend the beasts on account of the fact that we don't proceed towards our end by blind instinct, but that we can know it and that we can love it, that we can conceive of it and that we can choose it. So when Christians talk about the image of God, they talk about it as a kind of base of operations. You have these things, you have this mind, you have this heart, but it's not simply something static. It's something dynamic. You are, by virtue of your creation, like an arrow shot from the divine archer's bow, and you are already in flight towards your end. It's a matter of adjusting course as the way that best conduces to sanctity. So a mind and a heart are already on the move. It's a matter of training that movement so that it attains towards its end with greater security, with greater fixity, with greater verve. And so, um, we'll talk about the, the image of representation, which is to say that our mind and our hearts are patterned on God, who is spirit, right? And yet, we can go beyond that and say that we can know God and we can love God. So we can have God as the object of the movement of mind and heart, all right? And then it goes still further yet, and because this is an introductory point, I'll just sum it up. <laughs> um, we, we can know God with his own knowledge of himself, and we can love God with his own love of himself. And there we speak of the image of conformity, that our mind and heart are made capacious for God himself, and that he pours into our minds and hearts his own knowledge and love of himself, so that we can attain to the very interior life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So then when we talk about the life of virtue, we're not just talking about like style points, like you can accumulate X number of grace points and then you will be revered by your contemporaries and potentially raised to the altars. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, that's, I suppose, true enough. But um, the, the real drama is that as we train our minds and hearts, that we become yet more perfectly to the image and likeness of God. The point of being a Christian isn't to follow the rules well or to like get straight A's in whatever domain or discipline. The point is to become like God, right? So the image is, is an image of transfiguration, right? That, that in your consideration of God, in your contemplation of God, in your experience of the divine life, that you would be so transfigured that when you come down from that mountaintop, people would look at you like they looked at Moses and say, veil his face for it is terrible and good, all right? So you want to be made wholly, fully, entirely to the image and likeness of God. And thinking is part of that story. There's uh, a kind of latent, unaddressed anti-intellectualism in the culture. When somebody uses big words, right, it's not only that they're maladjusted to the contemporary audience, it's that they're a bad person. You're like, how dare you use big words? <laughs> um, it's, it's like, it's something with which we have to grapple. It's something that we have to address. Uh, this is especially true in my setting in the United States. If anyone styles himself smart, we lay him waste. 
<laughs> it's, it's incredible. Okay, so we don't want to be, um, you know, like that. We don't want to be uh, despicably smart, right? But we want to train our minds on the object of its inquiry. We want to get better at thinking so that we might be better at loving. Because ultimately, you can only love what you know, all right? You can only love what you know. And God wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. Were that not the case, he would have made us like animals so that we could proceed towards him by blind instinct. But we are called to proclaim, to manifest a particular kind of aspect of his glory that we can interiorize our pursuits, that we can ultimately make better and better efforts at conducting them with each passing day. So I'm just going to highlight five small virtues, okay, and just say a brief word about each. So think about these as thumbnail sketches, but maybe if you take a couple notes, they're things that you can bring before the Lord in the context of prayer. They're ways in which you can kind of um, interrogate your own life and think about your own habits of mind and heart and how they might stand to be further perfected. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about devotion, studiousness, humility, charity, and wisdom. And there's, a, there's an order of proceeding, so it's, it's deliberate, um, not terribly deliberate, insofar as nothing that I do is terribly deliberate, but here we go. <laughs> so first, devotion. St. Thomas speaks about devotion when he speaks about the virtue of religion. Religion, we often think about religion as a set of beliefs or a kind of professional setting in which you worship God according to a creed. Uh, but religion is understood by the ancients and medievals as a virtue, and it falls within justice. So you're familiar with justice. We are just insofar as we give to another what is his or her due. Religion is like justice vis-a-vis God. So in religion, we recognize the fact that God is our creator and our end. Notice This is a natural phenomenon, complicated by sin, but still, by virtue of the fact that we are what we are, we should recognize that God is our creator and our end. And with that recognition comes a response, and the response is worship. So religion regards acts of worship. And St. Thomas says that there are two interior dimensions of the virtue of religion, right? There is prayer and devotion. Prayer is defined in the Christian tradition in various ways, often as the raising of one's mind and heart to God. It's from St. John Damasy. And then devotion is prompt giving of the will, prompt giving of the heart. So you probably have a friend, maybe there's a, a group at, at school or a group uh, in the workplace, and you, you might have a friend who, when whoever is responsible for running this meeting asks for a volunteer before the request has been formulated and the job description made, already the hand is up, all right? You might think him a bit foolish when he does that. It's like, dude, avoid extra work, <laughs> right? But, but you also regard that as, as praiseworthy, that someone would be so willing to pitch himself into the midst of the fray because, well, because, right? So, um, so devotion is that promptitude whereby we give ourselves to the task, we give ourselves to the other. And it, because it informs the heart, it informs the will, all right, which is the seat of all the other powers, it has a way of giving the whole person. So it's, it's no accident that we refer to our giving of ourselves to God in the context of our spiritual lives as devotion, right? Because it does that. It gives of oneself. 
So in our intellectual pursuits, we want to cultivate this devotion, a devotion in service of the truth. This is my first practical recommendation. There's a book, it's called The Intellectual Life. It's written by A.G. Sertillange, who was a, a, a friar of the province of France who lived at the beginning of the last century and who published many, many excellent things. Um, and in the beginning of this book, which may as well be just, you know, retitled The Dominican Life. He's very sneaky about it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not promoting vocations. But you might prayerfully consider it as an option for your future, but I'm not promoting vocation. I would never. Um, that would be too advertising, and that would be too American. Um, right? But he, uh, he says, truth serves only its slaves. Truth serves only its slaves. So I think there has to be this kind of passion at the root of our intellectual pursuits, a passion to call each thing by its right name, to efface ourselves before the pursuit of what rules us, what governs us, what places genuine claims on us. So when St. Thomas talks about truth, he describes it as, here we go, this is your Latin for the day, adequatio rei et mentis, okay, the adequation of the thing in the mind, or the mind in the thing, which is to say that our mind reflects what is in reality, all right, so I have some kind of rhetorical, theological tendencies in my own speech, and I, I catch myself, I find myself saying something which I think is beautiful, but not necessarily true, that's bad, we want to chasten that, Right? It doesn't mean just by virtue of the fact that it is pretty, that it actually corresponds. We want to be passionate about this correspondence. We want to give ourselves wholly entirely to the pursuit of what is with the recognition of the fact that only the truth bears grace. There is no grace to be had in falsity. All right, No grace to be had in falsity. So that's the first, devotion. Second is studiousness. All right, which St. Thomas used in the Latin word that he uses is studiositas, studiousness. So studiousness is a moderation of the appetite to know. So devotion, you can think about devotion as the driving force, but studiousness is a kind of vigilance in our intellectual pursuits because sometimes our desire for the truth can be inordinate. All right, we can desire it in the wrong way or by the wrong means. Okay, And when that happens, sometimes we're tempted to, to subjugate the truth or to subordinate the truth to our own ends, which might be good enough. But if they're not good in themselves, right? if they're not the best, then it can introduce a kind of perversity. All right, Father Gregory, um, what does that mean? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, so I'll try to describe it in terms of our own human experience. I don't know if you've ever had this thought. Uh, but, but sometimes you're overwhelmed by how much there is to know, and you wish that there were fewer things to know so that more of what is knowable could be in your mind, right? So that you could exercise a greater dominion over the intelligible, a kind of conquest over knowledge, right? That's, it's, it's heartbreaking when we, when we experience that, when we feel that. Not in the sense that we're embarrassed at our own excesses and defects, but like, because it seems like what is to be known is so elusive, it can be so obscure, it can be so vast, and that, um, yeah, that can sadden the heart. There's, in the Office of Readings, a second lesson taken from St. Ephraim the Syrian from his commentary on the Diatessaron, and he likens the intellectual inquirer to a man who has happened upon 
a font or, or a spring. And the man is saddened by the fact that he cannot exhaust the spring. And he says, do not, do not, effectively, he says, do not be sad, drink and delight. Drink and delight. So when we try to cultivate studiousness, this means introducing a kind of order into our intellectual appetites. It means preferring the higher pursuits to the lower pursuits. So if you are a lord of pub trivia, all right, I challenge you to become a servant of theology. <laughs> it also means referring our knowledge to God. Sometimes we learn things uh, because we want to impress people, or we learn things because we want to gain employ, or we publish things because it hasn't been said yet. We're not entirely convinced that it's true, but it will help us get tenure, right? So we want to subordinate those lower pursuits to the higher pursuits, and we want ultimately to refer all of our pursuits to God, all right? And that means doing so consciously before the Blessed Sacrament with a, an honest interrogation of our own motivations. It also means using the right means. It means using the right means. So the example that St. Thomas uses is sortilege and necromancy, okay? I don't know if you've been tempted to that, but um, <laughs> for me, it's always been horospexy, which is tempting. That's reading animal entrails for those who like it. Um, right, so, so I think that in the 21st century, we need to be conscious of what the right means are, especially because of this digital age. Okay, what are the right means for the inquiry that, that, that lies before us? Um, so for instance, if you've, have you ever been in a conversation where you were trying to fact check? Okay, so the World Cup is going on, it only happens every four years, our memories are only so good, and we're like, who was it that won in, you know, 2006? Was that the year that Italy won? And then somebody pulls out his or her phone and starts to check, and you're like, no, 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 no. No, no, I just want to speculate about this. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's interesting when you introduce cell phones into a conversation, into an inquiry. It does change things because it's like, yeah, you just, you just want to have the right answer. But there's also something about the way in which you pursue that answer, which is humanizing. So, for instance, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists will talk about like memory offloading. Right? Some of our memories are actually offloaded on other persons with whom we have relationships. And we've done that purposely because we know that when we go for that memory retrieval, we'll be in conversation. And that's okay. Like husbands and wives do this a lot. Right? So it's an interpersonal recovery of the truth. And in so doing, you recover the setting in which that truth was first experienced. But with our cell phone, we've offloaded so much to I have no idea what this is, you know? Like phenomenologically, it's such a strange, such a strange thing. Oh my God! Okay, so the right means. I will, uh, I will set that aside for the moment. My thoughts about cell phones. Okay, long live. What is it? Luditism. How do you, never mind. Okay, so um, uh, the third is humility. Okay, so the third is humility. In order to be a servant of the truth, in order to think like St. Thomas, we need to love the truth more than ourselves. We need to love the truth more than ourselves. Because in the order of charity, the truth, who is a person, is more to be loved. So that means, practically speaking, to admit that you are wrong. Have you ever been in a conversation where you were talking to somebody and you said a thing and you realized without even recognizing it at the time, uh, that you exaggerated or that you told a falsity 
or that you shaped a story and actually included a tidbit from somebody else's experience and attributed it to yourself, correct it immediately. It's a little bit mortifying, but that needs to be chastened. That needs to be chastened. So we need to love the truth more than ourselves. We need to admit when we are wrong. We need to admit when we don't know. There are few words so liberating as I don't know. Great words to learn as first words in a foreign language. Aucune idée. Yeah, ik weet het niet. I'm working on, on Dutch right now, and by working on Dutch, I mean I know 17 words, but I know those ones. <laughs> All right, I don't know. Uh, I, I sometimes joke, my best friend is a philosopher, Father Bonaventure Chapman, and I joke that, that this is especially a theologian's temptation is to get out ahead of oneself. Because there's a form of argumentation which St. Thomas deploys a lot called argument from convenience or fittingness. So what you're doing is you're plumbing the depths of the divine wisdom and you're trying to draw connections you know, among realities. But effectively, you know, God holds counsel with himself. So you're not going to backstop those claims. You're just trying to see what might be at work, you know, like, or what the logic might in fact be. Whereas philosophers are so driven by knowledge to, to name what this thing is that they often stop short of naming it in a way that could potentially be false. So our, our conversations are hilarious because I'm like, and thus and such, and blah, 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 and yada, yada. He's like, well. <laughs> so if you have some of the rhetorician, if you have some of the theologian at work in your life, then it's good to rein that in insofar as you can. Second is to take on a master. All right, to take on a master, to submit yourself to the training of another. All right, that could be sacred scripture, uh, the church's tradition and magisterium, but it's helpful if that becomes even more close at hand, if that becomes even more personal. So I think here of St. Thomas Aquinas, who had St. Albert the Great as his master. And their love was so profound that when St. Thomas's certain propositions of his teaching were condemned in 1277 by the Bishop of Paris, Stephen Tampier, um, St. Albert the Great, who was at the time, you know, some 200 miles away, or what do we, do we count in miles here? Okay, 200 miles away, at the age of like 80, walked to come to St. Thomas's defense, and who wept in the midst of that defense. It's just like, blah. Um, so St. Thomas entered the novitiate in 1244, and then he began his formal studies in 1245, and he just followed St. Albert the Great first to Paris and then to Cologne where St. Albert was setting up a new studium. And he sat at his feet and he learned Aristotle and he learned Pseudo-Dionysius and he learned the church's tradition. He learned in time to differ from St. Albert the Great, but only with great fear and trembling for he first took him on as his master. I was talking to somebody recently and um, he was explaining to me what he was, he was doing for his master's uh, like work whatever you call that, uh, his, his thesis or dissertation, master's dissertation. And he was explaining to me that he was inquiring into this particular um, thematic, but that he wasn't doing it, you know, according to anyone in particular. And the reason he explained to me is like, because I want to be able to preach it. <laughs> and interior, I was like, <laughs> that's insane. Oh my gosh. Okay. Because how will we learn to testify unless we ourselves are first shaped by the testimony of another, right? That's what I want. I want somebody like, like John the Baptist, you know, starved to his crazy bones, but with eyes wildly alive because he has seen, and he can speak to me of what he has seen because it's changed him, 
because he has contemplated, and now he is sharing with me the, the very things contemplated, not little tidbits, not nuggets that he's picked up along the way. I want him to mediate to me that relationship because it lives and because I can live and abide in it. So take, on to, your, take to yourself a master. There's a kind of temptation to eclecticism in the way that you read. It's like, I want to read this and that and the other thing, and this book was recently published, so maybe I should have something to say about it. I would say that if it's a good book, read it twice. Again, tame that desire for domination, for conquest, which would tell you, I need to read many books so that way I can cite the titles or I can cross the titles off a list that I made over the course of however many past years. No, no. Attend to what is best with a master, and that will prove very fruitful. So, uh, fourth um, is charity. All right. Uh, I did my formation in Washington, D.C., where we typically do like two years of philosophy and five years of theology, unless we don't. Um, And uh, we're we're sometimes taught the positions of people whose names aren't St. Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) And when we study modern theologians, it's kind of hilarious. The way it was described to me by another friar in formation, he's like, I feel like an American gunner during the Second World War learning the contours of German aircraft. Like, I know them just well enough to shoot them out of the sky. (laughs) Um, Which, I wouldn't commend that as a practice, okay? I wouldn't commend that as a practice. Because, and this is something that Father Bonaventure says with frequency, smart people are smart. That sounds tautological. It is. (laughs) Uh, So, smart people are smart. And we need to inquire into what they said and why they said it so that we ourselves can be shaped by the same truth which they went in pursuit of. Might they have done so with mixed motivations or impure intentions? Absolutely. But, as St. Thomas quotes, I think St. Jerome often, whatever, whatever truth said by whomever is uttered by the Holy Spirit. All right, The truth by whomever spoken is uttered by the Holy Spirit. So we're trying to cultivate a kind of sympathy Not the type of sympathy which with subtlety and nuance says that everyone is right about everything because I don't want to draw distinctions, because I worship at the altar of tolerance rather rather than at the altar of the Most High God. Not interested in that. All right? But a sympathy which seeks to identify what is true so as to affirm that and then enunciate in better terms what it is that's being proposed or espoused. So... For us, it's a matter of seeking the heart of the thing, right? Seeking the heart of whatever proposition is set before us. I I recently had a moment where I was in a conversation with a professor of theology from the United States, uh, Bruce Marshall, who teaches at Southern Methodist University, which is in the sovereign nation of Texas. Um, (laughs) And we were talking about Resourcemont theology. So if you're uh, a fan of Resourcemont theology, I'm going to mildly offend you, and then I'm going to uh, repent of that. Okay, so trigger warning. <laughs> um, so my experience with specifically the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar, every time that I tried, I was very upset by the experience because what I observed was that it was a peculiar approach, a peculiar approach to both scripture and tradition, which I found to be anti-traditional. Uh, so one particular work that I read, you know, he would cite the fathers of the church, but he was very selective in doing so. And often he was quoting Origen, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and St. Maximus the Confessor. And I found myself saying, 
Where's St. Augustine? Right? Where's St. Gregory the Great? Where's St. Jerome? Where's St. Ambrose? Where's St. Athanasius? Where's St. John Chrysostom? Where's St. Basil? You know, because it was, it was just a peculiar way of proceeding, and it was almost as if he were handpicking the most peculiar things that they proposed, and then saying, so like hell maybe doesn't exist? It's like, yeah! <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? Um, so I, 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 was, I was frustrated by this experience of, of like leapfrogging mediation. It struck me as a kind of anti-Catholic sentiment because we can trust the tradition to mediate the riches of scripture uh, in a way that's refined, that's sifted, not because we ourselves are not capable of going to the sources, but because all good things are mediated. Like I don't want my human life apart from the love of my mother. What would that even mean? It's like, listen, no, I just want to get straight to the love of God. What? The love of God is made known, is made real through the love of my mother. It's not like love of God over here, love of my mother over here. It's like love of God communicated through the instrumentality of my mother's humanity and her whole wild set of emotions, right? <laughs> okay, so I just found the approach to scripture, tradition, the way in which certain fathers of the church were selected, I found that to be troubling. But then in the course of this conversation, um, he who had studied the resource theologians with much, 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 much greater attention than I was kind of commending to me what they might have been motivated by. And he was saying, you know, you're in a particular time in a particular place where Thomism is being taught with a particular rigidity. All right, you can think about the 24 theses. That's a longer conversation. But um, he said, and what they want, what they're kind of craving after is an insight. And they're trying to think in ways that like, almost defy the limitations of human speech and human conceptuality. They want bursts of clarity. They want participation in the triune life that attains to something of God's eternity, that attains to something of the way in which God experiences it. And so that they would be more eclectic, that they would be different in their approach to the tradition makes more sense in light of that. Now, I would have to give a longer defense in order for that to be really coherent. But um, yeah, but that helped me because I could begin to appreciate why one might, why one might adopt a methodology, which to me at face value seems so, so weird. Okay. Fifth and finally, and then I suppose we'll have time for a couple of questions, uh, is wisdom. We're seeking to cultivate wisdom. And wisdom is variously defined in the tradition as well. Uh, so in the ancient tradition, it will often be spoken of as that which gives one to order. Man, such complicated prose, Father Gregory. Learn to speak English. Um, so wisdom is described as knowing the principles in the conclusions and the, and the conclusions in the principles. So rather than have to like muck through the argument, okay, you kind of just see it. Um, so like an example would be in geometry, for instance, all right, you're like, you're looking at a, a triangle and you're like, I know that the measure of this angle is 55 degrees and the measure of this angle is, um, you know, whatever, 65 degrees. And then you're trying to calculate the exterior angle of the one angle that remains is yet to be numbered. And you're like, okay, so this one's 60 and this is a straight line. So that's like 120. But some moments you just see the exterior angle theorem and you're like, whoa. I don't even have to calculate that. You know, it's just right there. It's, it's almost like the wise person can skip steps, not because he or she is impatient, but rather because the truth unveils itself for the gaze of the wise. 
and the wise, as a result of which can order with a kind of subtlety, agility, dexterity. So that's described in that way, or wisdom is described in that way in the ancient tradition. But in the Christian tradition, uh, it, it's, it's, the description is filled out. And you, you encounter this in St. Thomas's treatise on charity. So you'll know that St. Thomas, when he describes the virtues, he describes the virtues as in each case perfected by the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the virtues are like when we act in a human mode and the gifts are like when we act in a divine mode. So one of the images which is used by a 17th century Dominican, he says, when we operate by the virtues, it's like we're in a boat and we're pulling at the oars. But when we operate by the gifts, it's as if we hoist the sail. So we're carried on as if by a divine breath, as if by a divine instinct. And when St. Thomas talks about the virtue of charity, he says that it's perfected by the gift of wisdom, which is wild to think about because charity is a matter of the heart, a matter of the will, and wisdom we typically think about as a matter of the mind, a matter of the intellect. So how could that be the case? He says wisdom kind of gives us a sympathy with God's very heart, okay? And here I'm using somewhat imprecise speech, but I hope it's somewhat helpful. Um, It gives us a sympathy with God's heart so that we can kind of grasp or we can kind of feel, experience in our own members God's love for whatever reality is at stake. It's as if our heart beats in time with that of God's. And so in that setting, he quotes Pseudo Dionysius who says, talking to another monk, Hierotheus, who says that by wisdom we suffer divine things. By wisdom we suffer divine things. So it's as if the very divine things themselves are impressed in our humanity and our humanity is shaped by it in turn. And I think, okay, so practical point, Father Gregory, uh, we often think about life as a matter of, you know, agency, which is good. Life, life is something that we need to, um, we need to conduct. It's a bull. We, we need to, Father Gregory, learn how to speak. Um, <laughs> you know this American expression to take the bull by the horns? Um, so, so it's something that you need to seize, that you need to lay hold of, right? That you need to look at the control so that it uh, conforms then, right, to your thoughts on the matter. There. When truth be told, so life is equal parts will mean to be done and to be done unto. In that book, The Intellectual Life, life, life is something that, that you, that you that perform, to right? that you live, but also that you suffer. There are moments in which and we get a better appreciation of this as we go on. And in those because, moments, we you know, we're living our lives, but as we go, we're also interpreting our lives. We're so making sense of what has me, happened the morning. and getting a better feel right, for what is in fact going is on. kind of like worthwhile that I will have and done that day usually gets done by like 11.50. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it never um, ceases to what does that mean? Me. Do that, like, right, because God, day, in his generosity, sees no. fit to involve um, us in his providence. But I, I usually read because I need to be far more attentive when I write. to reveal to us Because writing for me is far more difficult than reading. So that we don't feel constantly storm-tossed and practically your relationships with people but that we can give ourselves in light of this that goal. we can consent to it that so we can abandon your phone ourselves is a to great what example. is on our phone we, we often consume things that's which are gift. transient which are occasional because in so doing lack in cultivating this sympathy so for instance with God, I will attain to the highest wisdom still I don't think it's important intimacy with our Lord Jesus uh, what Christ the Philadelphia Eagles or the Philadelphia 76ers do this year as the wisdom in the objective scheme of proceeding from all eternity the, the heavenly Jerusalem descends from on high, lives, as we just heard yesterday, and we are seated on thrones to share in the Lord's act of judgment, 
I don't feel like one of the criteria for that will have been how well I knew the Sixers' schedule for the next three weeks. Okay? Um, but I often look at that before I go to bed. And whenever you open your phone before you go to bed, you inevitably spend more time on your phone than you intended to. So I think... Uh, you need to look at your phone like an enemy that you have permitted into your camp because it sometimes provides useful information. But he will betray you just as soon as you give him any freedom to do so. All right? So, password protected and screen timed and make it effectively as useless as possible and, and circumscribe it so that it only does your task. Okay? And then, with respect to intellectual pursuits, I think you can have an intellectual life with two hours a week. Because intellectual life is... Like I stressed habits of mind and heart and not effects or consequences because it's not about the books that you write or the articles that you have published. It's about becoming a contemplative. St. Thomas describes what it means to be a contemplative in the Secunda Secunda questions 179 through 182. And it's not for him contemplative and active lives isn't first a consideration of whether or not you're religious. It's just a division of what kind of person you are. It says the contemplative person permits the speculative intellect to dominate. All right, over and against the practical intellect. So there are all kinds of practical concerns, but it's for us to try to create some space in which they don't make too terribly many incursions, okay? And, and the morning is often best for that. So prayer is more important. I would commend to you the practice of at least 20 minutes a day of prayer, but try to have five to 10 minutes of intellectual time each day. Right, where you're reading something that challenges you. Recall, the point is not 100% comprehension. The point is growth. And looking at your life with this disposition to inquire why and to have the response from the Lord as it's informed you know, by study and prayer. So your phone, your sleep, your, your, your calendar, right, your agenda, the way that you organize, all of those can be put at service of this pursuit. Thanks for a great talk, Father. So, um, some of us are not that clever, so I find it very difficult to grasp uh, very dense theological ideas that may be for Dominicans are trivial. So what sort of advice would you give to like us, us fools that maybe can't grasp it, we want to love God, but maybe we find it difficult to do so in an intellectual way? Do you think it's more of a charism or something that applies to all of humanity? Yeah, great question. So, <laughs> what, I, what I tried to propose was something that can be done by all of humanity. So maybe the, the terms were a bit too florid or a bit too grandiose at times. But what I know is that you're made to the image and likeness of God, that you have a mind with which to know, and that part of your perfection, the grand part of your perfection, is to exercise that mind well so that you move from being a mere static representation of the interior life of God to dynamically representing him in your knowing itself. And what that entails is that you seek to live a contemplative life of some sort and that the two wings by which our contemplative life mounts to heaven are prayer and study. I think that study, it needn't be hoity-toity, right? But it need challenge you a bit, okay? Sometimes I think we feel judged by a text that we can understand and so we set them aside lest we be embarrassed. But that's okay. We are judged by texts, but not all judgment is bad, okay? So it's not for me to say, like, I don't like what St. Thomas says about this because it's demanding. I don't judge him. He judges me, 
Okay? And if the magisterium makes subsequent clarifications that he erred on a point, then, still with fear and trembling, I will say he was wrong. Okay? <laughs> um, but when it comes to, to reading, the habit of reading, and finding texts that do challenge us, I would say that um, that grows out of your particular and personal vocation. So I don't think that everyone needs to know and love St. Thomas Aquinas. I think it's good that people inquire into St. Thomas Aquinas, but I don't think, like, materially speaking, is this what you need to read? No. Um, but I think that you should read something that's theologically informed and that will enrich your life and that will form talking points with the Lord. So I think many of us are in the habit of having a conversation with ourselves about ourselves, okay? Certainly if you set your alarm on your cell phone, this is decidedly the case because you turn off your alarm and then you see text messages and WhatsApp messages and whatever else, and notifications that have been pushed for God knows what reason. And then like the anxiety spiral of the day begins and you're like, how am I going to? This is so ah, yada, yada. Okay, we weren't meant to have this. We were meant to be broken open to a conversation with God about God. And basically our study gives us talking points, right? We're not, we're not gonna impress God with the things that we know, but we wanna exercise our minds. Um, so, so good things that you can do, stay close to sacred scripture, stay close to sacred scripture because it's the inspired word of God. And then if you want to venture forth those things, which help you to enter in, which help you to appreciate it. Okay. So like the fathers of the church and their commentaries, the tractates on the gospel of John by St. Augustine, devastatingly helpful. Holy smokes. I was just thinking about something that he said the other day at the miracle of wedding feast to Cana. He says, what's the miracle? He says, you have water and the Lord makes it wine. Well, he asks, what is the ordinary course by which wine is made? He says, well, rain falls, it waters the field, grapes are grown, they're gathered, crushed, fermented, and you have wine. Water becomes wine. So what then is the nature of the miracle? God does instantaneously what ordinarily takes time. And I was thinking about that in terms of vocation stories. Oftentimes you hear these sensational vocation stories. And if you're anything like me, you hear them and you think, wow, God doesn't love me. <laughs> right? But the extraordinary is meant to testify to the marvel of the ordinary. Think about the fact that at your baptism, God sowed his divine life in your soul with a dynamism which will break forth unto sanctity of life eternal, provided only that we consent and we cooperate. <laughs> so water wine so yeah so scripture close to scripture and then go from there yeah um, my question is how, how is religious life by the secular world I find the secular world is more powerful now than religious life am I making sense yeah um, so let me just clarify just uh repeat what I understood of your question. So like, how, to what extent is, is the secular world kind of closing in on religious life? Okay, yeah, a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that all of us hope to push back against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but all of us are the products of our age. And I think that if we act as if we weren't, like if we try to live as if the enlightenment didn't happen, for instance, we become anachronisms or dinosaur bones. Um, so I think that um, we often uncritically or unconsciously adopt elements of the 21st century which compromise the integrity of our personal, social, political, religious lives. And I think that's really difficult. But I also think that a helpful hermeneutic with which to approach these questions is to realize, like we said of the cell phone, that it's against you. 
It's not for you, okay? Every time an update is pushed, I recall that. This update is not for me. It's against me. It's trying to outdate my technology so that way I will buy further technology. So that way, as they you know, supply more and more services and commodities, I will feel increasingly attached to them such that the very thought of trying to recover something of my past life becomes unthinkable, right? How will I navigate from Heathrow to St. Dominic's without my cell phone? I will be utterly at a loss, all right? And, and the anxiety before the experience and the gratitude after the experience cements me in my attachment to my cell phone. When truth be told, I could have showed up at the airport, asked some people how to get there, and made it. Would I have been a little later? Perhaps. Might I have missed Mass and not preached last night? Perhaps. Would Jesus still come back in glory at the appointed time, none of which, which of us know? <laughs> Certainly, all right? Um, so, so, yes, I think that's a great observation to make, and I think that it's for each of us, in whichever setting we find ourselves, to recognize the fact that there are elements of this present evil age which want to swallow us whole. Hello, Father. You said, um, love the truth more than ourselves, but truth serves only its slaves, but that requires courage. So what is the correlation between truthfulness and courage as a virtue in our modern day? Because I didn't recall you mentioning courage and yeah. how we're to always arrive practically at, tru at truth in every circumstance and occasion. Yeah, great question. Um, so I'll do two and then one. Uh, so how do we arrive practically at truth? Um, it depends if we're talking about speculative or practical considerations. Usually people aren't as uh, concerned about speculative considerations. Um, they, they typically tend to be concerned about practical considerations. Uh, but the norm of truth in practical considerations is right appetite. And this is a mind boggler. Okay, so I wrote a book. It's called Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly. What I'm about to say is like a preface of one of the chapters. And the point is this, that our job, as it were, that's so crass, our vocation as human beings, all right, our vocation as human beings is to seek the good, all right? We're not made to be optimizing, maximizing robots. We're meant to seek the good and to make something beautiful of our life in the pursuit. So like, for instance, you're asking yourself, what do I do with my life? What vocation do I pursue? Well, religious life is described in the church's tradition as objectively higher. So I would be a fool not to be religious because I want to do the better thing. Well, not necessarily, right? Because those objective truths, right? Those objective goods are proposed to us for our subjective appropriation, not in the sense that we relativize them away, but in the sense that your call, your vocation is something that God addresses to you personally, particularly, individually, contingently, historically, etc. So God is giving you certain graces, cultivating you certain virtues which suit you to a life in which his glory will be made manifest and your salvation secured, provided that you attend to it. All right, so it's not for us just to think like, must maximize goodness, um, <laughs> right? Because that's not human, right? That's not human. And so the norm, the standard, is what conforms to right appetite. So you ask yourself the question, is this something that a temperate person would do, that a courageous person would do, that a just person would do? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then be about it, all right? Do you get your hair cut today or tomorrow? Surely there's a better option. I just, can't, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that when you go to the hairdresser, you're not stressed about it, you engage her in conversation, you hand her a miraculous medal, you invite her to the rosary <laughs> devotions, 
and that you bring her along, okay? Right, so I, I think about that often, especially in free, Switzerland is not a very smiley country, and I, I don't say that as an accusation, it's just some cultures um, just don't smile as much. In America, we're super self-conscious and insecure, so we have to smile at everyone, so that way when they smile back at us, it's like, Ooh, oh my gosh, my life still matters. Um, Right? But, but I find that just walking through the streets of Freiburg, meeting people's eyes in a minimally creepy way, and then smiling, right? it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Like, it can be the difference between a good day and a bad day, depending on how that encounter at 9.37 goes. Like when you have a good bank teller, holy smokes. It's like, I fall in love on the reg in those situations. I'm like, it could be like a 57-year-old woman, and she's like, and here's the change, and I'm like, I just love you. <laughs> Right, so, and then with respect to the first question that you enunciated, courage. So courage, St. Thomas has, says, has two dimensions. It informs what he calls the irascible power, which is that dimension of our sense appetite which confronts difficulty. And he says, sometimes it demands of us attack, and sometimes it demands of us endurance. He says, the principal part, though, is endurance, right? Because it's rare that you find a battlefield in which you can pitch yourself in, um, but it's often that we have to endure what life throws our way. He then subdivides two dimensions of that endurance. The first he calls patience, and the second he calls perseverance. And I think patience is especially pertinent in the intellectual life. Because if I'm honest, the intellectual life is sad. It's sad. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be consoled. <laughs> All right? And the word that's used there in the Gospel of Matthew is parakaleo, which is the same word from which we get the title of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, which means exhorted, encouraged, advocated for, counseled, consoled. It's awesome, all right? So you get God, all right? You get God provided that you are patient, that you endure life's sorrows with the grace that he supplies, all right? And the fruit, ultimately, is communion. The fruit is friendship, and that will see us through any difficulty. For Radio Maria listeners, we're now switching over to the Mass at Walsingham, but for those in the room, we can carry on with some more questions. <laughs> Radio.